Am I broadcasting? Ah, there we go. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, our Father, You see Your children growing up in an unsteady and confusing world. Show them that Your ways give more life than the ways of the world, and that following You is better than chasing after selfish goals. Help them to take failure, not as a measure of their worth, but as a chance for a new start. And give them strength to hold their faith in You, and to keep alive their joy in Your creation. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we are, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time or who missed last week, we are, of course, in an ongoing study of St. Paul's second letter to Timothy. Um, We haven't gotten very far, to say the least. Um, Paul, at the beginning of that letter, talks about the faith that dwelled in Timothy, but before it dwelled in Timothy, he talks about that faith dwelling in Timothy's mother and his grandmother. And so we decided uh, over the course of the past couple of weeks to take a bit of a detour and just talk about the value of families and the impact that families can have on successive generations. And we looked last week at the responsibility that we have as Christian parents and indeed as grandparents and godparents to raise up a godly generation. We said that the, the first and foundational institution in history was what? It was marriage. It was marriage. We look through those opening accounts of Genesis, the creation, and God looks on the days of creation, each successive act of creation, and He declares them to be what? Good. He goes through them and He said, this is good, this is good. And finally you get to the final day of creation when God creates man in His image, and He said, this is very good. But then you get to Genesis chapter 2, and you come upon a verse in which God looks upon what He has made, and He says that something is not good. That's exactly right. It is not good for man to be alone. And so what does he do? He creates a helper for him. And that's the beginning. That's the beginning of family. And we said that family is foundational to society. The first education takes place in the home. The first health care takes place in the home. Uh, people are in, or children are exposed to government for the first time in the home. It's out of that patriarchal system that monarchical forms of government and ultimately democratic forms of government come. So that if this is foundational to society and the foundation is removed, what happens to society? It's in peril. And I pointed out to you last week, I think this is one of the reasons why family is under attack in our culture today. I think it's a demonic attack even. And if you look at what the Apostle Paul writes in his epistle to the Ephesians, it's interesting to know that Paul talks about the relationship between parents and children, children and parents, and then he moves on almost immediately from a discussion about that to put on the full armor of God. Because our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood but against the spiritual forces of wickedness that dwell in the heavenly places. So we need to understand that family is important, it's foundational to society, and as Christians, you and I have a responsibility to raise up a godly generation. Uh, I jokingly asked you the question, but it's serious. What was the first command that God gave Adam and Eve in the Bible? Well, I said, go and have sex is the way I described it last week, but it's true. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. And that is the responsibility of Christians. We are to fill the earth that we may praise the Lord and His glory. 
So we talked about that, and we said that the danger, of course, when you're raising your children is always in the extremes. Uh, that Jesus battled not just against the Pharisees, he battled against the Sadducees as well. And they represented those two extremes in Jewish life. And the thing about Jesus was that he managed to find the balance, that balance between grace on the one hand and law on the other. All grace and no discipline leads to what? Well, it leads to license. On the other hand, all law and no grace leads to what? Rebellion. Don't stick those red hots up your nose. <laughs> so I said what I was going to do today is give you something practical to chew on as parents and as grandparents and some of you who are godparents. These are nine pointers, as I pointed out to you last week. I am not suggesting to you, you know, the Apostle Paul could say, join in imitating me. When it comes to parenting, Kristen and Jeff Miller cannot say, join in imitating us. As I said, we take these principles and we apply them to our lives with a varying degree of success. But what I will tell you is that I think these are godly principles, and the more that we ascribe them to our lives, the more we apply them to our lives, the better off our families will be, society will be, the world will be. So here are nine pointers for parents. Um, most of these, the first seven, come from a book that was written some years ago. It's a little dated, but I still think it's got a lot of practical advice. A book entitled Heaven Helps the Home by Howard Hendricks. The last two pointers, the last two pointers are from yours truly, so you can take them or leave them as you see fit. But nine pointers from Heaven Helps the Home by Howard Hendricks and yours truly for raising a godly generation. Before we get there, I want to come back to a, a section of Scripture that we sort of passed over last week, but I want us to take a look at again, just to remind us of how important this really is. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, Jesus put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So it's serious business that we are engaged in this morning. So what's the first pointer for parents from heaven helps the home? First one is this, provide an atmosphere in the home that builds... I'm sorry, well, I don't understand why that has gone off the screen like that. We're, we're going to have to work on that, but I'll read it to you. Provide an atmosphere in the home that builds warm, close, personal relationships. Make sure the home is a place of belonging and love. This means spending time with your children. Now when I say spending time with your children, I'm not talking about being in close proximity to your children. I'm not talking about being in the same home with the children, the same house, or even going to your children's activities. It's possible to be in the same room with your children and not be with your children. How familiar a scene is that in our culture today? 
How many of you have ever seen that at a restaurant? I was at a Cracker Barrel not long ago. We were on a road trip and we pulled off into the Cracker Barrel and all of a sudden I looked across the table and there was a mother and a father and four little boys. And everybody was on a cell phone except for mom. And mom was just there with no one to talk to. And that's typical of what we see, isn't it? Oftentimes we see people texting each other across the table instead of actually communicating with one another. This is revolutionary. And I would submit to you that it's dangerous for society. Um, about two years ago, I heard a Mars Hill audio presentation that was done on a study that showed the impact of technology on family life. And being someone who has a great interest in history, I found this so illuminating. In this study, they showed that in the 1930s, the number one family activity was what? Anybody know? 1930. No, it wasn't. The number one family activity in the 1930s was taking a family walk together after dinner. Families sat down at the dinner table, and generally speaking, it was multi-generational, because in those days, we weren't so mobile a society, and so people didn't travel from one place to the next, so it was not just parents, but it was oftentimes grandparents. And they all sat down, and they had a family meal, and they had nothing to do but to talk with each other. And then after the meal, the number one activity was to take a walk together. Now, the 1940s rolled around, late 1930s, early 1940s, the advent of the wireless. What became the number one family activity? Sitting around the wireless, listening to President Roosevelt's fireside chats. Now that's an advent of a form of technology. So all of a sudden, what's happening? No longer are the family talking to one another, to each other, the members of the family, but instead they are what? They're together, but they're now listening to the president. What was the number one family activity in the 1950s? Family activity. Television. Television. This is the advent of the TV tray, the TV dinner. Have you heard of all these things? These things were all invented so that families could gather around and not miss Lucy and Desi, Ozzie and Harriet. Whatever it was, the family was together, weren't they? But they were now all gathered together, no longer talking, no longer just listening, but now listening and watching the television, even having their meals at the television. Now with the advent of cell phones, what do we have? Well, we don't have one screen. Everybody has their own personal screen. So we're not even listening to the same person or watching the same program. We're all doing our own thing. And you can be sitting right there in a restaurant or right there at the dinner table and everybody's got their own screen so that we have now become a culture in which we are, listen to this, alone together. We are living in a culture in which we are alone together. So when I talk about the first pointer 
to raising up a godly generation, and I say it's about spending time with your children, it is not just being in close proximity to them. Can I go back to the first screen so that you can print it out or write it down? Sure I can. I think I can. Maybe I can. Ah, uh, fear not. No, 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 fear not. There you go. And I can print these out for you as well. So if that would be helpful to you, I can print these out for you as well. But that's what you want to do. You want to provide an atmosphere in which children feel loved and cared for, but also an environment in which you are spending time with them. Quality time with your children. Interacting with your children. There's nothing wrong when it comes to the dinner table that all electronic devices be left somewhere else, in a completely separate room. The pilot is taking off, and we don't want this to interfere in any way with our family time together. So, spending time with your children, quality time, not together, but alone. Second pointer for families. Be a good example to your children. Your faith and values will be more likely caught by your children than taught to your children. They're going to be caught, not taught. Don't be afraid to admit you've made mistakes. Kids need to see that you are human and that you are big enough to accept grace and forgiveness. Every now and then my father would say, do as I say, not as I do. I discovered that even though he said that, I ended up doing what he did anyway. Kids need to see that you are human and big enough to accept grace and forgiveness. Then they will grow up into adults who can forgive and accept forgiveness as well. It does not matter what you say to them. If your example is a poor example, they will learn from you. Why? Because a picture is worth a thousand words. It's just the way it is. Road rage is a perfect example of this. I think you already know that I have a heavy foot. Um, I'm just a fast driver, and I'm paying for it, quite literally, uh, uh, as a result of that. I don't recommend speeding. But I do sometimes. I'm just kind of one of those driven people. I get a little impatient at times. And I remember being in the car with my two youngest children, and two occasions, and I was just cut to the quick by this. First of all, our youngest, Josiah, was very late in talking. Now, that's probably because in our house, the poor kid couldn't get a word in edgewise. I mean, but he just didn't talk. So we really prayed. I mean, we're worried that there might be some developmental issues. And so we were really praying that he would talk. Our prayers were answered. <laughs> but do you know what his first words were? Kristen remembers this. His first words. We were in the car. And no... He didn't say slow down. We were at a stoplight, and Kristen and I were having a conversation, and from the back, his first words were, green means go. <laughs> now, where did he get that? Because dad's been sitting behind somebody at some point and says, green means go. Those were his first words. Green means go. And on another occasion, I heard my daughter say at one point, I said, oh, this person is so slow. She says, put up a sail. 
And that was an expression that I sometimes used too. This person needs to put up a sale. We, we need to get a little more action here. And I realized no matter what I was telling my children, that's what they were learning. They will catch what you hold dear more than you, they will learn it simply by being taught it. So be aware of that, parents. Be aware of the fact that the way you conduct yourselves, the way you talk, the way you treat one another, the way the husband treats the wife, the way the wife treats the husband, these are the things that will be embedded in your children's minds and hearts for decades to come. And they will pass that on to their children as well. Third bit of advice. Allow gradual emancipation from the apron strings of parental authority. Begin early to feed them responsibility a little at a time. Evaluate the results and adjust their freedom according to their ability to handle it. Do not do everything for them. You have a responsibility to prepare them for what? For life. And life is about responsibility, and life is about work, whether they want to do it or not. <laughs> giving them chores, giving them responsibilities, and not necessarily with pay to go along with it. I'm not saying it's wrong to give them an allowance or anything like that to teach them how to handle money, but they need to understand that simply being a part of a family means that everybody has a role to play. Everybody has a role to play. Uh, turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter 2 for just a moment. I want to point something out to you here. And this is one of the things we have to watch out for, particularly in an affluent society. And before we read Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, I want to ask you a question. When you think, just picture in your mind's eye, the description that we have in the book of Genesis of Eden, what do you imagine? Just give me an idea. When you, when you picture the Garden of Eden, what, what do you picture in your mind's eye? Lush, green. Does it compare to anything today? If you think of some place today, what would the Garden of Eden be like? Hawaii. We're thinking of paradise, aren't we? And, and what do you do in Hawaii? Relax, you lay around, you enjoy the, the sand and the surf and, and, and the fruit and, the, and those drinks with the little umbrellas in it. That's, that's what you do. That's paradise, right? Let me show you what paradise really looked like. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and keep it. Adam and Eve were created for work. And here's a revelation for you. When we get to heaven, God's going to give you a job. It doesn't stop. There's no such thing as retirement. It's not just that this life is all the work and then we get to there and we get to retire for eternity. You and I were created for work. Work is what we are meant to do. God himself worked. Isn't that what Genesis is describing on those six days? It's a work week. On the first day, God did this. On the second day, did on the seventh day, yes, he rested. 
But God works, and He continues to work to this very day. He sustains the universe in which we live. He gives us the air and the breath that we breathe. Work is what human beings were created to do. And so understand that by preparing your children for work, you're not just preparing them for life, you're preparing them for eternity. So don't be afraid to teach them responsibility. And let them have a little bit of freedom. When children need guidance and counsel, provide a relaxed, informal setting. Spend time building a warm relationship, not a friendship. We are not to be friends with our children. We are to love them, but we are to be a parent to them. They'll have lots of friends out there. What they need is a mother and a father. Build a warm relationship with your child so that he or she will be more willing to accept your counsel. If you've got to discipline your child, or if you've got to reveal something big to your child, don't do it in a sterile setting. Try to find the kind of setting where it will be conducive for you talking to them and for them hearing to you without a large number of interruptions. God is in the timing of things. Uh, the best um, comedians, what? Have the best timing. The same thing is true with parents. There's a time to tell something and there's a time not to. I'm going to give you an example from my life. Kristen uh, revealed to me at one point, she said, um, she was about, oh, I guess, eight months pregnant with um, our daughter. And um, I had not had the conversation with our boys about the birds and the bees yet. And our, our second son at that time was only about, oh, five or six. And he wanted to know how the baby came out of Kristen's womb, out of her body. Explain that to me. And Kristen said, you'll explain that to him. <laughs> so what did I do? Well, I decided we would have a boy's day together. And um, so we um, went to Charleston. We were living in Beaufort at the time. As most of you know, I, I collect relics from the war between the states. And there was a Civil War relic show taking place here in Charleston at the Gilliard Auditorium. So I said, I'll take the boys up there. You know, little boys are fascinated by guns and swords and that sort of thing. So we came up and we had a, a day and they, they went through this relic show with me and they were just fascinated by this. And then I took them out for a big boys lunch. We went to a real nice restaurant, barbecue, the whole nine yards. It was just a great day. It was a wonderful day. And then we're riding home in the car and I decided now's the time. <laughs> we're going to talk about the birds and the bees. Not the right time. I'm going through this, and of course my father was a biologist, so I'm telling them in graphic detail how everything works. And at one, I hear not a word. Not a word. You know, and I'm just driving and talking at the same time and going on and on. And finally, I look in the rearview mirror, and my younger son is back there like this, <laughs> with his hands over his ears. And my second son is sitting right next to me, my older son, in the car, and he is smashed up against the car door. If he could have crawled through, he would have done so. And he has tears in his eyes. And I said, son, 
what is wrong? And he looked at me and he said, Dad, why did you have to ruin a perfectly good day? <laughs> and I realized, not the right time, not the right setting. So think about those things when you are trying to teach your children. Make sure that the environment and the timing is right. Don't just blurt it out because it's easier for you to do it. I'll be honest with you, I, I didn't want to talk about the birds and the bees with them, and it was a whole lot easier as I was driving not to look at them. And when I did look at them, it was sad, to say the least. <laughs> so bet, bear that in mind. Fifth pointer, set limits. Children want and they need the security of boundaries and restrictions. They need that. But discipline your children only in the context of love. Your children will not accept your limits unless they know that they are loved. And you tell them that you love them, not only with words, but more importantly with your time, attention, and genuine interest. The scripture says we are to speak the truth in love. And those two things go together. Speaking the truth in love. It's very possible to speak the truth, but not speak the truth in love. When a minister speaks the truth, but he doesn't speak the truth in love, and people are offended, chances are they are not offended by the gospel, they are offended by the minister and his demeanor. So we've got to speak the truth, but we need to speak the truth in love. But the love is always combined with the truth. So those two things go together with your children. Speak the truth to them, but speak the truth in love. Love without truth, leads to license. Truth without love, as we've already seen, leads to rebellion. Apply, number six, the law of natural consequences as they grow up. As your children grow in their ability to make decisions, let them decide, but also let them live with the results of their decisions. If we make all their decisions for them, they will lose confidence in their own ability to make decisions. If we bail them out and shield them from the consequences of their decisions, they will grow up with an irresponsible attitude, expecting never to have to deal with consequences. In some cases, it's healthy for children to make mistakes and accept the consequences as long as they are not consequences that cause serious or lifelong harm. Let me ask you a question from your own life. Have you learned more from your victories or from your mistakes? How many of you have learned more in life from your mistakes than from almost anything else? Children are going to make mistakes. Sometimes you need to allow them to make a mistake. Now you see a toddler over there and he is sticking his finger in the electrical socket. Do not allow him to do that, saying, well, he'll learn from his mistake. It may be fatal. But there are other times in life when it's very important for us to allow them to make mistakes and live with the consequences of those mistakes. And remember this, and I'm going to come back to this in just a moment. Beyond 18, they are really not children in the eyes of the law. Now this is shocking, but we're going to come back to this in just a moment. But a perfect example of this is a teenager. Gets pulled over for speeding by the police. And comes home and crying, and dad takes the ticket 
and pays the ticket and pays the premium and lets the daughter continue to drive with no consequence, does she ever grow up learning responsibility? We are bailing them out, yes, but they're not really learning responsibility, are they? Because the time is going to come and mom and dad may not necessarily be around and they're going to make decisions and they're going to have consequences and they're going to wonder who's going to come along and teach me about this. Bail me out, deliver me. So teaching your children responsibility is very, very important. And to do that in preparation for that 18th birthday is very important as well. And I'll come back to why that is the case. Number seven, manage their expectations with honesty and love. They cannot be anything they want to be. Now that's what we tell our children. You can be anything that you want to be. But folks, let's be honest, it simply isn't so. They cannot be everything they want to be. To tell them this is to set them up for failure, disappointment, and anger. Those are expectations on the right side. You see what reality is in life, don't we? If your, children may, your child may want to be a nuclear physicist, but if they don't have an aptitude for math, they're never going to be a nuclear physicist. And if they are, you don't want them working on the reactor that's been built close to your house. If they don't have an aptitude for English or for writing, chances are they will never be a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. You have to help them with that. So many young people are growing up today and they are frustrated and they are angry because their parents told them they could be anything that they wanted to be and they discover that that is not necessarily the case when they get out there in the real world. They graduate from college and they assume that they can just be what they want to be and it simply is not the case. And we have set them up for failure, for frustration and for anger. So you've got to manage their expectations, but as you do, listen to this, teach your children that their worth is not to be found in having been made, is not to have been, is to be found in having been made in the image of God, not in social acceptance, financial success, intellectual prowess, or good works. See, that's the problem. If you teach your children that their value is to be found in worldly success, what happens when they fail? And they will. What happens if they lose their job? Is somehow their worth diminished? A person's worth is not to be found in the silver and gold coins of success and good looks. A person's worth is to be found in the fact that they've been made in the image of God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. You can tell your child that Jesus Christ died for them. They are of worth and value, whether they are successful or not, whether they get that Phi Beta Kappa key or not. They are of value and they are worth because they have been made in the image of Almighty God. And they are of such infinite value to him that he sent his son to die for them. Most importantly, surround your children with a fortress of prayer and with the word. Psalm 119 says, I will hide your word in my heart. Hide God's word in the hearts of your children and your grandchildren. Pray with them, pray for them. And trust them to God's care. 
he can actually do for them greater things than you can. Trust the Holy Spirit to care for them, to cover for your inevitable and occasional mistakes, and bring your children, who are ultimately his children, to a place of faith and maturity. Finally, if you're thinking to yourself at this point, oh boy, I haven't applied any of these. I have so messed up my kids. If that's what you're thinking, remember this. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, the Apostle Peter says, because love covers a multitude of sins. None of us does this perfectly. These are just principles that we can apply to our family lives and to the lives of our children that can make a difference for them and for succeeding generations. None of us does this perfectly. Which is why God's love covers a multitude of sins. We are living in a very different world, ladies and gentlemen, from the one that you grew up in. How many of you served in the Korean conflict? Anybody out there served in Korea? A couple of you. How many of you served in Vietnam? Those of you who served in Vietnam, how old were you, Colonel Harrington, when you were in Vietnam? You were 29. ML, how old were you? 26. Listen to this. This was an article that was in the New York Times Magazine. This was about, oh, six years ago. The question pops up everywhere, underlying concerns about failure to launch and boomerang kids. We're in the thick of what one sociologist calls the changing timetable for adulthood. Sociologists traditionally define the transition to adulthood as marked by five milestones. Completing school, leaving home, becoming financially independent, marrying, and having a child. In 1960, 77% of women and 65% of men had, by the time they reached 30, passed all five milestones. Among 30-year-olds in 2000, according to data from the United States Census Bureau, fewer than half of the women and one-third of the men had done so. A Canadian study reported that a typical 30-year-old in 2001 had completed the same number of milestones as a 25-year-old in the early 1970s. Here's a report from Ethics Daily. In a way, the understanding of adolescence has matured among scientists. According to some contemporary theories, adolescence now lasts until age 34. <laughs> Meaning that many of today's soldiers, members of Congress, and business persons could fall under the category between children and adults. According to some contemporary theories, adolescence now lasts until age 34. The number of projects studying adolescence has surged over the last few years, largely due to various industries viewing adolescence as a huge market for medication, entertainment, goods, and services. If people are having children later in life, in their 30s, and their children don't reach mature adulthood until they're 34, how old are you when your kids become adults? 
you're closer to 70s. It's a very different world. And I'm not putting on this, this on you to make anybody feel guilty or overburdened, but to just recognize we don't do ourselves, we don't do the church, we don't do society a failure by failing to recognize these things. And to recognize that as Christians we have a responsibility to do something about it. It is our responsibility as Christians to set the world a more excellent example. And I struggle with this myself because I've got two in college struggling with all of the things that I've just shared with you. So we're in this together. And one of the things that I hope to do over the years to come is to provide resources for parents and for families here at St. Philip's so that we can do this together. There's strength in numbers, but that's the challenge that we are up against at the dawn of the 21st century. That's what we're up against in this brave new world. Now, of course, I'm prepared to go on and talk about something else, but I just want to pause there for a moment and see if there are any questions, concerns, or anything like that. Try to answer any questions that you may have before we press on. Yes? Yes? 